All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all. We're going to study God's word together. So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it to the book of Psalms, chapter 3. Continuing this series, bringing our emotions to God. And here we are, David writes this psalm. You can see right there at the top, right by the number three, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. So that's the kind of historical context behind the words that David is writing. And here's what he says, if you'd follow along as I read out loud. David writes, Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. Someone has said that you don't really know a person deeply until you know four things about them. What makes them laugh? What makes them cry? What makes them angry? And what makes them afraid? And I think one of the reasons that the book of Psalms resonates so much with us is the more we read the Psalms, the more we feel like we know these people. Because we hear them rejoicing, and we hear them crying, and we hear them in pain, and we hear them fearful, and we hear them when they're angry, right? So we're getting to know this, but not only that, but it resonates with our own experience because we experience these emotions. And so this whole series is about how do we direct these emotions to God? How do we bring this stuff that's going on inside of us to God? So we talked about this at the very beginning of the series, that the Psalms give us, in God's grace, a language for every season of the soul. So if God in his grace has given us a language for every season of the soul in the book of Psalms, then what do we say to God when we're afraid? What do we say to God when our back is up against the wall? Because that is exactly what David is experiencing. His back is up against the wall, he's weak and he's helpless and he's afraid. And so there's a kind of progression in our passage that's gonna help us bring this particular emotion to God because that's the particular emotion David is experiencing in Psalm three. And so we're gonna move progressively through four words. And the first word is this, facts, facts. That's the first thing that happens is David just says, here's what's going on on the ground of my own experience. Look at verse one with me. Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. So he's telling it like it is. He's saying, God, this is what's real. Uh, This is why I'm afraid because I'm up against a lot of enemies and they're out to get me, right? So if we just apply verse one and two to our own lives, what are we doing? What do we start to do as people bringing our fears to God? Well, we start by naming our fears. We name our fears. So in the, in the original Hebrew of this, it's translated into English, but in the original language of the Hebrew, there's this Hebrew root word, R-A-B, rob, that is used three times in the first two verses. It's repeated three times, right? So in Hebrew poetry, 
Uh, repetition is a means of emphasis. So they would repeat something twice if they really wanted to emphasize. For example, even uh, later after this, a thousand years later in the time of Jesus, Jesus would say things like, truly, truly, I say to you. Well, it wouldn't have been less true for him to say truly once. You know, if he said, truly, I say to you, you still need to believe what he's about to say. But if he says, truly, truly, it means it's not only true, it's really important. Truly, truly, I say to you. So it's repeating something. It's a way of, uh, for the Hebrews to underscore it and say this is extremely important. Right, well, here, we don't just have something repeated twice, but on rare occasions in scripture, you have something repeated to the amplitude of three, which is kind of, you multiply it by infinity, right? So for example, um, a classic moment in the Old Testament, Isaiah the prophet has a vision of the Lord and all of his majesty and his glory and he looks into the heavens and he sees the, the glory of God revealed, the train of his robe fills the temple, angels are singing and what are these angels singing? They're not just singing holy is the Lord. They're not just singing holy, holy is the Lord. They're singing of the thrice holy God, holiness multiplied by the amplitude of infinity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Right, so these are rare occasions. Well, David, he's using three words repeatedly right here in the first couple of verses, and he's not singing holy, holy, holy at the beginning of this song. He's singing many, many, many. Rob, Rob, Rob. It's the Hebrew root word that's used there. So, for example, if you look down in your text, my foes are increasing. That's the Hebrew word rabu. It means manifying. If we had an English word for manifying, our English word is increasing, right? But it's that same root word. Many are my foes. Many rabim are attacking me. Many rabim are saying of my soul, there's no help for him in God. So he's singing. He's just saying, look, can I be real? Many, many, many. I am surrounded by foes. Foes that are so vexing to my soul, I can't find the words to describe the situation I'm in. You, you talk about naming your fears. David gives a particular name to his fears right there in the italics, right by the number three, right? You see, a psalm of David when he fled from his son, Absalom. So the fear has a name, and the leader of all the thousands of fears, the leader of that group, is his own son, Absalom. You just can't imagine, right, the, the pain of this. So if you wanna get the story, go back later on, I'm not gonna read the whole text, but go back later on and read the history of these events that were transpiring back in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and 16. And what was going on there is King David was very busy with matters and affairs of the kingdom, and so he was working on things and having meetings and so on and so forth, right? And so you couldn't get access to him. It was an extremely busy time. And there were building up piles of complaining people in the kingdom who said, you know, this isn't the King David we used to have access to. And they would come pounding the door at the king's gate and they couldn't get in. And guess who's waiting at the king's gate? The king's son, Absalom. And he says, you're never gonna get in here. He's so busy these days. Come talk to me. Come tell me what you're complaining about. Come file the complaint with me. And he takes him off to the side. And next thing you know, more and more people are trickling through, not ending up getting to the king himself. And they're talking to Absalom. And Absalom is selling them a bill of goods. And Absalom is saying, you know who you need to trust in? Me. You know who needs to be your new king? I do. And, and the people start to buy it. 
and they're actually backing Absalom, and there's this secret coup that is forming among David's own people, led by David's own son. And it comes to the point where, where there's an intelligence briefing. In chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, it says, an informer came to David and reported, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all the servants with him in Jerusalem, get up, we have to flee or we will not escape from Absalom. Leave quickly or he will overtake us, heap disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. This must have been surreal for David to say, my son is coming and I know my son. He's gonna bring disaster. He's gonna bring the edge of the sword. He just killed his brother Amnon like a chapter ago. He is a bloodthirsty, power-hungry boy and he's coming to town and apparently he's got so many people, we need to get out now or we're all gonna die. He's saying that about his own son and, and that is what inspired the writing of this psalm. He is on the run. Many scholars believe that the first day of David's exile outside the palace is the morning that David wrote Psalm 3. How many are my foes? Many are attacking me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no help for him in God. And they're all led by my own boy, Absalom. So Christian, when you pray, name your fears. We name our fears. Second, we tell God what our fears are saying. You notice that's what's happening here. He's quoting his fear. Many say about me, and I quote, there is no help for him in God. You know, it's one thing to be surrounded by enemies on every side. It's another thing to be taunted by enemies on every side. And it's another thing altogether to start believing them. And when they say there's no help for him in God, and we start to say, I think they're actually right. I think God has left the building. I think God is no longer on the premises. Somehow I have, I don't know what I've done this particular moment, but I have fallen out of favor and God is no longer for me. And he's saying, that's what they're, they're in my ears and they're saying, you don't get help today. You've sinned too much, right? So some of the, it's interesting because some of the biggest turning points in the entire Bible happen when God's people quote their enemies in the presence of God. That's what David is doing. But here's another couple of examples from the rest of the Psalms. Psalm 74, verse seven and eight. They're talking to God in prayer. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it to the ground. They said to themselves, and I quote, we will utterly subdue them. It is a pivot foot for God's people to have faith because they're quoting their enemies in the presence of their God. Psalm 137, verse seven. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said that day at Jerusalem, quote, destroy it, destroy it down to its foundations. It's as though God's people in faith are saying, God, do you hear this? Are you gonna let them get away with this? Here, because here's what David says, here's what they're saying about you. They say that there's no help for me and God. They say you're the kind of God who would leave me high and dry. That's not the kind of God you are. What are you gonna do about this? Because here's what my enemies are saying. He's quoting his enemies in the presence of his God. You think about how David's experience here not only resonates with you and me and things that we experience living in a fallen world, but how it foreshadows the great king who is coming in David's line, the offspring of David, the son of David, the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, born in the line 
of David because here we are, a thousand years before Christmas morning. We're a thousand, Psalm 3 is a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And what's going on? You think about the parallels. What's going on a thousand years before the birth of Jesus is Israel's king is exiled from the very city over which he ruled. And Jerusalem has evicted its proper king and chosen Absalom in his place. Right? It's no wonder that Jesus Christ, when he comes on the scene, so often when he's praying, he's quoting the Psalms. He is the psalmist par excellence. He is the quintessential psalmist. When he's on the cross and he reaches for language, what language does he reach for? The Psalms. He's quoting the Psalms, right? That the rightful king was exiled. Jesus Christ could equally have said, many attack me. My enemies are increasing and many are saying about me that there is no help for me in God, right? He is driven out of this very same city, the city of Jerusalem, almost exactly reenacting a thousand year ago story from Psalm chapter three. And they see Jesus, the son of David, hanging on the cross and what do they say? They taunt him, right? They say, wait, if you're connected to God, why are you hanging here? If you're connected to God, why aren't you sitting on the throne in Jerusalem? Why won't your God help you? Right now, we situated where we are after the cross and resurrection, we know the answer to why David's greater son ended up on a cross and why David's greater son was driven out of the city. He was driven out of the city so that he might bring us to God. He was driven out so that he might take those who are far off and bring us near into the presence of God. Friends, we know this where we're sitting here this morning that we don't need a holy city to get near to God. We don't need happy circumstances to get near to God, right? We can know God's nearness while singing many, many, many are my foes. That's Psalm 3. The gospel reveals this truth to us, right? The son of David, he hangs his head in shame on the cross and he becomes our glory and the lifter of our heads. His head hangs in shame so that he might be our glory and the lifter of our heads. The apostle Paul, what did he say about the cross of Jesus? He said, God forbid that we should glory or that we should boast except in the cross, except in the shame of David's greater son, because in his shame, our heads are lifted forever. He drives our shame out by burying it in our place. Look, Brook Hills, every Sunday, we boast in the presence of our enemies. <laughs> every Sunday, we are taunting sin and death and hell and Satan and the grave, right? First Corinthians chapter 15, God's people that were singing themselves into this truth. The apostle Paul writes, hell, where is your victory? Grave, where is your sting? It was, it's 2,000 year old smack talk that God's people have been singing in the direction of their enemies now for millennia. It's basically saying to our greatest enemies, where are your vaunted powers now? And how can they undo the God who is for us, right? So it starts with facts and it moves to faith. Faith, you see verse three, but you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy 
mountain. You know, all the best stories in the Bible begin with two words, but God. Right, we read in the New Testament these precious words in Ephesians chapter two, and it tells your story if you're a believer in Jesus and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Talk about back against the wall. Talk about helpless. Dead in trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature toast, right? We were by nature children under wrath as the others were also, best words in the Bible, but God, (laughs) who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. So 2,000 years ago, the apostle Paul taught the church to sing two words, but God, and to sing those in the assembly of the saints. 3,000 years ago, David taught the church to sing two words, but you, in the presence of our enemies. The enemies are there, and David says, but you. But you, O Lord, are a shield. I got thousands of enemies, and they're all around me, but the shield goes all around me. The shield completely covers me behind and before. Our fears, friends, are no match for our help. Our fears are no match for our help. Faith doesn't deny our fears. It resizes them. That's what we see the very first two verses. Faith doesn't deny, doesn't ignore them. It doesn't fake it till you make it. You know, who are the enemies? I'm not even gonna talk about them. No, he talks about them. Faith doesn't ignore the enemies. Faith resizes the enemies. You know, the most frequent command, again, in the Bible is do not fear. Do not be afraid. Interesting thing is, every time God says to his people, don't be afraid, they have a lot of reasons to be afraid. Hence the need for him to say, don't be afraid. They've got a laundry list of reasons to be afraid. So when God says in his word, time and time and time again, when he says, do not fear, what does he do? He staples his resume. He says, don't fear. Hold on a second. Let me tell you some things about who's got you. Right, so for example, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, God is speaking through the prophet and God asks his people a rhetorical question. He says, I know your back's up against the wall. I know you're terrified to death. Have you not known? Have you not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. I'm just gonna staple my resume right here so you know who's got you. I'm watching over you. Who can stop me? Name somebody, I'll wait, right? That, that's, that's how God fills his people's hearts with faith in the midst of their fears. He gives them his resume. He says, you know what your fears fear? Me. <laughs> your greatest fears fear me. I have a friend, uh, John Onwachekwa. He's a pastor in Atlanta. We just call him John O because nobody can pronounce his last name, but we just call him John O. And, and his way of saying this, I love it, is he says, God is your greatest problem's greatest problem. 
Let me say that again. God is your greatest problem's greatest problem. And David is riffing on that very same idea. David starts remembering truths about God. David starts remembering Old Testament theology. And he, now he's not listening to his fears anymore. He's not in listening mode. Now he's talking. Now he's preaching. Right? He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield. Many, many, many are my foes, but you are my shield, and my foes are no match for my shield. What is David doing? He's remembering the word of God. He's remembering the story of, that he's been swept up into, the story of God and God's people. So his, his ancestor, right, all the way back to the end in the patriarchal moment where God pulls up alongside Abram and God starts making promises to Abram. And David, I think, is recalling the very beginning of this whole story of God's faithfulness because what happened in that story when God pulls up alongside Abram? These words, Genesis 15, verse one. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. And here's David, right, a thousand years after Abraham, and he's saying, I remember where this all began. God came to his people, to Abraham the patriarch, in whose line I stand, and God said, don't be afraid, I'm your shield. And David says, I won't be afraid, you are my shield. It's a thousand year old story and it's as true today as it ever was. He's remembering the word of God. And not only does he say you're my shield, you see those next words, my glory and the lifter of my head. God, you are my glory. Where is David's glory if his glory is tethered to the throne? Well, you don't got no throne in Psalm 3. You've been exiled. Absalom's got your throne. At least for today, Absalom's got your throne. So if your glory is tethered to your throne, you got no glory. David says, God is my glory. Throne or not, he is my glory, right? David comes to a point of saying, the honor of God weighs more than a whole kingdom. You, O Lord, are my glory. Let me ask you this question. Does the commendation of God outweigh the approval of your friends? Does the commendation of God outweigh the approval of this world, the applause of this world? Your life of obedience to the word of God is going to tell the story of where you locate glory, of what the highest honor achievable is. Your highest glory is, is the thing that's gonna move the needle. Whose honor, let me ask you that question, whose honor moves the needle in your life? Jesus, uh, rather David says, you are my glory. And I love that language. You see verse three, the lifter of my head. Verse three is such a beautiful verse for those who feel wrapped in shame, for those who feel like the only future for me is just more and more disgrace because I feel wrapped in this shame thing. I feel like everywhere I go, they can see it. It's like it sticks to me and everybody sees my shame and they hang their heads and they can't make eye contact, right? Because we're in shame. Our heads are, are fallen. There's no restoration of dignity for me. There's no story after shame, just more and more shame piled up, right? Well, the psalmist is coming in contact with something else. He hangs his head in shame as he leaves in exile in Jerusalem. And here God comes to the psalmist and lifts 
his head. He says, you are the lifter of my head. You, you look at Jesus and what does he do? He bumps into the most shame-ridden people in the pages of the gospels and what does he do? He lifts their head. He removes their shame. Christian baptism, what, what does it do? It announces you got a new identity. The old life didn't stick to you. The things you did before you put your trust in Jesus, None of that sticks to you. You got a new name. You have the threefold name. You're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're not what you were before. The shame is gone. Your glory is not tethered to what you do in this city. Your glory is not tethered to your wealth, your income, your family, your influence, your performance. It's not tethered to your looks, your attractiveness. Your glory is not tethered to an unblemished record of sexual purity. The gospel's better news than that, friends. A lot better news. He bore our shame. He forgives our sins, right? Martin Luther famously said, the 16th century Protestant reformer, and he said, Christians aren't loved because they're beautiful. Christians are beautiful because they're loved. Right? His love beautifies. His love washes us clean. It's glorious, glorious news. The great psalm scholar of the early 1800s, William Plumer, he said this about our verse. When the Lord thus lifts up the head, who can bow it down? <laughs> Facts, faith, third, acts. Acts. I lie down and sleep. There's a, there is a theology of sleep in the Bible. There is a theology of sleep in the Psalms. You keep reading the Psalms, you get late, 127, Psalm 127, and, and you're asked the question, why are you staying up so late and waking up so early in the morning? Why do you, the psalmist says, eat the bread of anxious toil for God gives to his beloved sleep. Sleep is a gift from God to his anxious People, right? Many, many scholars call Psalm 3 a morning psalm. And they call it that because in verse 5, David just woke up. So he talks about how he went to bed, and then he talks about how he wakes up in the morning. In the second part of, of verse 5, he wakes up. So this is a, a morning psalm. It's a song that he sings first thing in the morning. And then Psalm 4, it might even say this in your Bible, a night prayer. So right back to back, Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 is a morning psalm and an evening psalm. And look how Psalm 4 ends. Verse 8, I will both lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. So there you are, you got a psalm for the morning that says you slept through the night and God managed to keep the planet spinning and he's going to hold you up today. And then you got another psalm right after it to sing at night that says, you can go to sleep, I got this. Psalms of rest, right here, back to back, what's it mean? The recognition that God is our shield invites us to rest. It invites us to rest. Think about this, so choosing to rest, choosing to Sabbath, choosing to go to actual bed can be an act of faith for us as Christians, right? Because choosing to go to bed and choosing to rest and choosing to be still and choosing to Sabbath is you saying to the Lord, God, I believe you can run the universe while I'm out cold. Right, some of us, we might even need that nudge tomorrow morning if it were possible for God to nudge you in the morning and say, hey, guess what? 
I managed, right? It's okay. While you were asleep, everything didn't fall apart. That's sort of the psalm of the morning. I'm waking up and God has got me, right? Let me ask you this question. Do you have a well-formed theology, not only of kingdom activity empowered by the Spirit, but do you have a well-formed theology of Sabbath rest fueled by the promise of God? Because we need both of them. And if you have a well-formed theology of rest, a well-formed theology of be still and know that I'm God, right? A well-formed theology of Sabbath, how does that, what's the pay dirt? What, what impact does that have on your life? It enables you to say, parents, for example, it enables you to say, God, you can get through to my kids without me constantly nagging them, right? It says, God, I can come off the field of ministry, I can come off the field of mission and it's not going to mean we lose the ball game. It's freeing to know that God is awake and active while we are asleep. It takes faith and courage to go to sleep when your enemies are outside. And that's exactly what's going on in this psalm. By the way, just look at it. I wake again because the Lord sustains me, so it's morning. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. So the thousands of people are outside. You could see them just out there. The thousands of people are still there. Good morning, David. Your enemies are all still here, right? And yet there's this word of rest and trust in God. He wakes up, the enemies are outside, thousands of them, right? What's the, what's the parallel? The cancer is still wreaking havoc. You wake up and the cancer is still there. You wake up and the friends are still isolating you. You wake up and the addictions are still calling your name and saying, you and I, we need to hang out again. It's been a while. You need me. And what does the psalmist say? I see thousands of people outside my front door and I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have set themselves against me roundabout because you, O Lord, are a shield. Facts, faith, acts, and hopes. Rise up, Lord, save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. Those words, rise up, Lord, that was a battle cry. That was, uh, that's the Old Testament's Braveheart speech. You know, before we go out to battle, God's people would say, rise up, Lord. And that, that language would follow all the way through the Bible and even, and even into centuries and centuries following. The church would sometimes say that. There was a, there was a papal edict written by, I think it was Pope Leo in the 16th century, and he wrote it about Martin Luther King, I'm around here, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, and it begins with those words, rise up, Lord, exerge domine, rise up, Lord, there is a wild boar running loose in your vineyard, and that wild boar's name was Martin Luther. Right, so it's saying that there's a battle cry here, we're up against the wall and we gotta do something about this, right? So the hope of the psalmist is rise up, oh Lord, right? You see how we've come full circle here at the end of Psalm three, we've come full circle to where we began because this word arise balances the lament from verse one. Because in verse one, David said, many are arising. Many are rising and saying of my soul, there's no help. And so he comes to the end and he says, my foes are rising up. God, rise up. God, arise on my behalf. 
Here's the truth of it. The Lord conquers the enemies we could never conquer. He says, save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked, right? That seems kind of dark. You know, it's, it, it, is this you and me reading Psalm 3 and saying, God, God uh, you know, punch that guy in the face, you know, uh, knock his teeth out. Is, is that how we apply Psalm 3 by just being petty and saying, hey, take out all my haters? Is that what's going on? And individually, it just vindicates uh, personal vendettas of God's people against whoever they want to bring down, right? Just kind of pointing God's holy finger in the direction of who we want uh, to take out. No, that's not what's going on in Psalm 3. David expands his vision beyond his own individual and immediate concerns. And what does he say in verse eight? You see it? Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. This is David, the king of Israel, knowing where God's program of world history is headed, namely the salvation and benediction over the people of God. The benediction and blessing that lasts forever. Basically, David is saying here at the end, don't let anything stand in the way of your global program for the salvation and blessing of your people. If anybody tries to stop it, God, don't let them. Shatter cheeks and break teeth so that your program of global salvation runs so that your people are upheld. There's a statement that got traction when I was a kid. I don't know how far back it goes, but it goes something like this. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. And what is God doing? You come to the end of Psalm 8, and you ask that question, what is God doing? And Psalm 8 says, he's saving. That's what he's doing. It's saving is his business. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's what he does. Salvation belongs to the Lord today. You wake up tomorrow morning, salvation will belong to the Lord tomorrow, right? It is what he is doing in the world on behalf of his people. So this doesn't even need saying, but let me just say it. We don't live in heaven. We live on earth and we live in a fallen world. And what we know, not only from scripture, but we know it from our own experience, that God's sovereign will in history and his sovereign will in your life is not to give you and me an uncomplicated and easy life. That's not his plan. That's not his purpose. What is he doing then? He is forging trust in him that will be vindicated a thousand times over when you see him face to face. That's the salvation God is bringing into the lives of his people. That is the blessed hope to which Christians look. And how does that hope speak to us when we're afraid? There's a line from Matthew Henry, the great preacher from a couple centuries ago. Matthew Henry says, let me describe uh, the, the psalmist. Let me describe David as we see him in the book of Psalms. And here was his fourfold description of David. He wept and prayed. He wept and sung he wept and believed, he wept and slept. He wept and slept. You know, believers in the, in the time of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, they woke up many mornings feeling like what they needed was the language of Psalm 3. 
because they were surrounded by their foes, threatened by persecution, threatened by martyrdom, right? They needed to know, what can we say when our back is against the wall? What can we say when our foes are too strong for us, right? And Martin Luther, he said, I'll give you some words inspired by the book of Psalms, and he penned what was known as the battle hymn of the Reformation, a mighty fortress is our God, one of which the stanzas reads this way, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. That's the 16th century's version of what my pastor friend from Atlanta says, God is your greatest problem's greatest problem. So what does that mean for you and me this week? It means get some rest. God has got us. We need not fear. We can direct our fears to him and we can find in him a shield.